On June 17th, I was getting the kids ready for bed when I saw out of their window this glorious, incredible burst of Mount Sinai-like glory streaming through the window. And I, I immediately stopped. I was arrested. I was stopped in my tracks, and I made my kids in their pajamas come outside. But when you see something that glorious, you just have to stop what you're doing and stand in awe. You have to, you have to arrest yourself, or you're just arrested, and you, you have to go and drink it in. God gave the Apostle Paul an uncanny and amazing gift of seeing in the eyes of his heart and being able to paint with the words of his scriptures the most glorious sunsets of the truths of God. And if you read Paul enough, you'll know that he was a man who seemed to always carry around in his heart the biggest and the most important and the most miraculous and the most glorious vistas of God's truth imaginable. And in today's texts, we just have to stop. Or I'm, I just felt burdened to stop. It's a very small piece of text that we, we, we're going to rush through through last week and move into a new text this week. But as I p- prayed and thought about what to do with this week, I felt the burden to just stop and sit with Paul as, as he brings these glorious, amazing, invisible realities that he cannot help but just gush over in the middle of whatever else he's doing. He just had to stop and say, look, look, come outside with me. You know, we're talking about something, but I just want to stop and bring you out to something bigger for a moment and look at the sky of God's amazing glory. So we're going to slow down here in our study of this book to glory with Paul in God's glory because what he does at the close of this section in chapter 3 is what we've just talked about in in microcosm. He's just arrested by God's glory and he's calling us to be stopped in our tracks by that glory as well. So before I do anything else, I want to pray because seeing it with our eyes is not what we need. We need to see it with our hearts. And that's always the work of the Holy Spirit who we need now. So would you guys pray with me as we go to God for his help to see? God, thank you so much that you're the one we need to count on. Not me. Not Andrew. Lord, I don't need to count on me this morning. The folks sitting in the seats here don't need to count on themselves or me to be able to see this morning. We desperately need to count on you. And I thank you that you are so able to make us see who you are, that you are so able to do it and that you are disposed to do it because you're good and you're loving. And you wanted us to be able to see you so bad that you poured out, Lord, the blood of your son, the blood of your precious, innocent son, who meant more to you than anything. 2,000 years ago on that cross so that today in this room we could see. We could know that the door is open to cry out to you. Oh Lord, open our eyes that we might be able to see you in your word. And so I pray that we would see you this morning together. I pray God you'd protect your word in my preaching. Lord, that through my preaching or despite my preaching, your word would be honored and heard this morning, God. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, so here's the text. Here's the beautiful vista of God's glory that we're going to look at. But this is the vista. This is what we want to look at. This is 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to look at verses 21 through 23. Let's look at God's sunset together. So let no one boast in men. 
For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God's. And I'm going to say that again. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. These are the very words of the Lord for your hearts this morning and my heart this morning. If you've been following the series so far, you know that Paul is seeking to bring an end through redemptive correction to this church dividing over different leaders for the wrong reasons. And so in this section, he's appealing them that he wants them not to glory in men, not to put their hope in men, not to boast in their favorite orator, but to hope in God. And as Paul closes the section of the argument, he adds this new twist. And basically he's saying, Oh, Corinthians, why would you fight over having the greatest human leader you want since you belong to God and Christ and all these leaders are yours? Don't boast in them. Don't, don't tear and bite as if your boast was in them. They're just men. They cannot save you or keep you. They can't bear that pressure. They don't have that glory. So why would you find your hope in who they are? When they're simply your infinite and imperfect servants on God's behalf. Paul is trying to save the Corinthians from something we all need saving from. Putting our hope in anything but God. Whenever I put my hope in anything but God in the deep place of my heart. Whether it's my wife or whether for you it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a job. Or my reputation or your reputation or an athlete or a sports team. Or a a pleasure that you have on social media or whenever that becomes functionally your treasure, your greatest treasure, your greatest hope. You must eventually move into delusion or fear. Because you know deep down in the same place that God speaks to you, in the same place where his image lives, you know deep down in that Romans 1 They all knew God. They're without excuse. Because we all have a sense of who God is. We all know that in that place, we are putting our hope in the fallible, in the finite, in the destructible, in the feeble thing, in the created thing. And you know you cannot keep the created thing because those things are neither eternal or perfect You know deep down inside they're not things you can depend on. And that truth that says only God is worthy of depending on. That innate sense will will cause this tension to percolate in your heart. And as you try to put your hope in that created thing, whatever it is, your heart will whisper to you, I still don't have enough of what I need. I don't have it enough. Your heart will say, I don't know if I have it forever. I need to have it forever because that thing you know won't last forever. I don't know if that thing will keep me because you know that that thing, whatever it is, can't perfectly love you and it will drive you further into insecurity and worry or addiction and numbness because deep down in your soul where the deep things are known, where God speaks to the innermost being as 
David says in Psalm 51, you know that a created thing, a limited thing, a fallible thing, it can never fully or truly satisfy you. If it's a person, they may turn on you and, or you may turn on them and that won't satisfy you. If it's a thing, money, power, sex, glory, that thing will end when it is no more or you are no more. If it's your hope in yourself, you'll be waiting, conquered by the fear of failing or exhausting yourself with striving to maintain your own sufficiency. Even more important, even more distressing, in putting your hope in the created thing, you're concealing God's glory that's owed to him. You're offending him and moving towards idolatry. And so while in this previous section, Paul had warned them seriously, stop doing this. Even going so far as to warn them that if they destroy the church, they can't but be destroyed by God. Paul brought these sticks of warning and caution, but now he pivots. And he brings this carrot of God's glorious grace to them. To woo them away from this idolatrous dividing by showing them how ridiculous it is to try to hold on to a scrap of the carpet when God's given them the whole palace. And so he says, so let no one boast in men. But he doesn't then correct them. He doesn't warn them. He's not doing that now. He did that earlier. Now he says, my children, brothers and sisters, everything is yours. It's all for you. God has already given you all things. So he calls out, he shouts. Why are you fighting over men when God himself belongs to you and you belong to him? Why are you finding your identity in something that can't satisfy when the only satisfying one has given all things to you in him? He says, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, they're all yours. Paul, in all his genius and zeal and tenderness, belongs to you. You people who are going after Apollos and Cephas. No, Paul belongs to you. And all his sacrifice and joy, he belongs to you. He's your servant. Peter, the rock, and all of his experience with Jesus himself, all of his learned humility through all the lessons God taught him, all of his stature as the first to confess Christ among men, he belongs to you. He's your servant. Apollos, we know less about him, but perhaps he was the one who they felt closest to as a Greek in all his cultural empathy and understanding. And sensitivity to what it meant to be a Greek citizen. He belongs to you. He's your servant. Whatever they are, they are for you. They belong to you. It all comes from God. All of them are needed gifts, but none of them are indispensable gifts. Only God alone is the indispensable, irreplaceable one. And then he does something where we just have to stop. Like we've talked about. He doesn't move on to the next subject. Paul gets caught here in the thickets of God's glory. And he just goes up to the stratosphere with God's goodness. See, it's not just Paul or Apollos or Cephas. It's everything. It's the world. It's life. It's death. It's the present. It's the future. It's all yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God. See what Paul is doing. He's caught up in God's glory. And he begins moving from the little league of God's gifts to the major leagues to the Milky Way of God's gifts. Very quickly. He, he, he's caught here. He is 
he's caught up in the glories of God and he, he's moving from the circumstances of their specific situation in Corinth and he's going universe about it. The world, life or death, the present, the future, they're all yours. So let's go through each one of these items to try to understand what is Paul trying to say to him? I mean, these are abstract concepts. The world, life is yours. It's easy for me to get up here and get excited about it. I've, but it, it might be hard for us to just, what do you mean, Paul? Why should that be exciting to me? Why should that be helping me with, with my current situation? So let's hear what Paul might mean about each, Lord willing, that he does mean about each of these terms when he says the world, life, death, the present, the future. Let's start with the world. The world belongs to you, says Paul. This world with its opposition to all things godly. This world hidden and not so hidden in its hatred towards anything Christ glorifying. This world that looks like, to your eyes and my eyes, rebellion and confusion more and more each day. This world that is on its best days, a slow train to absolute anarchy and spiritual darkness. This world lost in sexual immorality, posing as freedom. Lost in political strife, getting darker and darker every day. In hatred and racism and tyrannies and abortion and persecution. This broken, fallen world. It will have to serve you. It will be forced by God to bow down its knee to serve you. It belongs to you. This evil world that seeks to bring evil to you, God will make all that evil serve you for your good. God will make it bow down at your feet and turn all of its attempts to destroy you and make you fit its mold into a training ground for your growth in his holiness and joy in his strength. He is so committed to using everything in this world to bring you into conformity with the image of his son. That Paul can say, it all belongs to you. And on the positive side, this world of beauty, of mountains and sky and seas and art and music and food, none of it will be lost for the believer. This world is not going to be lost forever. It's going to be made new. It's going to be renewed this world, you know, we, we, we all imagine the day when we're all going to be in heaven. But many of you probably know if you finish the book of Revelation, heaven and earth become married in the end. Heaven comes down to earth. God didn't make this earth to be abandoned. He made it to be glorious and inhabited forever. And whether it's this earth renewed or a brand new earth, theologians can disagree. I kind of think it's, it's the latter. But... Earth is going to be a setting of eternal perfection and joy. It will become the throne of God and the throne of his people who sit in his son at his right hand. This world belongs to you. It can throw all that it can throw at you. And it can hurt. And it can confuse. And it can tempt you to sin. But God says, I'm not going to let it conquer you. It belongs to you. It is your servant now. And Paul says life belongs to you. He says life is yours. Existence is yours. It is for you. It is for your good. Life is such a precious thing. God cares deeply about your life. 
You are wonderfully and fearfully made. Did you know that the DNA code for your specific life, you one person sitting here in this chair, it's coiled up like slinkies in your cells. This code, this DNA code, it literally tells your cells. It literally, in a language that's a real language, it tells your cells what to be and it directs every aspect of your material existence. Your nose, your eyes, your skin, your bones, your organs. Everything about you comes from this literal coded instruction that God wrote in each of your cells called DNA. Did you know that if you pulled the DNA out of all of your cells, one person, and you laid it end to end, it would travel the distance... From the center of the sun to the very end of the solar system, two times. One person's DNA taken out of their cell, strung out. It's that small and it's that long. That's just your DNA. God did not go to all that trouble for nothing. He means for your life to mean something. Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written, all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The Amplified Bible seeks to unpack Ephesians 2.10 this way, and is glorious. For we are his workmanship, his own masterwork, a work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works. Listen, which God prepared for us beforehand. Taking paths which he set so that we would walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us before one of those days came to be. All of your hard days, all of your troubled days, all of my sad days, my rough days. God says, I, I ordained them all. They belong to you. They will have to serve you. They will have to bow down for your good. This brief life on earth full of sorrows and full of joy, full of trouble and full of opportunity. It is precious to him. Your life is precious to him. It is full of his glory. He means it for your good. Charles Spurgeon says it really well. He says this. I think that a man has morbid views who does not reckon life a blessing. With all its trials and sorrows, it is still a precious gem. It may be set in a ring of iron. But it is a gem, notwithstanding. If I may be the means of saving souls from hell, if I can wipe away the mourner's tears, if God shall help me to bind up the broken in heart and set the prisoner free, if my fellow man by my means can be led in the paths of righteousness, if souls can be snatched away from perdition and heirs of earth made heirs of heaven by my staying here, then, oh God, let me live. Do not look upon life as a curse, Christian. Count it a blessing and seek to make it so. It will be full of weeds and thistles to you if you do not plow it. But if you plow life with persevering industry and earnestness, and I would put in parentheses there, even imperfectly, you will make it a garden of the Lord. 
Life is yours. It is for you from God to be your servant for your good. Every day, good and bad. And he will make it so. Death, Paul says, death is yours. Yes. Weird to hear that, right? No, God says, I give you death, formerly your greatest enemy, over to be your best friend. Before Christ, death is the mournful final act of this life and the dreadful foreshadowing act of an eternity lost in what Jesus says is anguish and weeping, gnashing of teeth. But now for you, believer, death has become like Jacob's ladder. When he saw in his dreams the angels ascending and descending up to heaven, it's gone from our bullying tormentor to the key that unlocks the greatest door conceivable. The door leading to being forever in the very presence of our Savior, our heavenly husband. For the believer, we can still fear death. But that's not because of the facts of death. That's because of our weakness. This world's worst fear has become like a royal road to the king's palace. You may die peacefully in your sleep in your old age. You may die tragically sooner than that. None of us knows, but we know this. In either case, death has been forced. Death has been forced to bend its knee to do only the bidding of God Almighty. And that bidding is good for you. Death has become your slave. Next, Paul moves a little further from the abstract and says to you and I, the present belongs to you. The present belongs to you. Today belongs to you, church and Andrew and Cassie. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the sorrow, whatever the fear you walked in here with this morning, Paul reminds you that right now, in this present moment, God, whether you feel it or not, is at work in it. He is at work through it. He is at work despite it. He is making this present moment and this present season right now to be your servant. And perhaps it does not feel anything like that he is doing. That's how all of us feel very often. We do not feel the goodness that God is often doing in our lives. The hardship continues or grows. But if that's the case for you this morning, let me just encourage you, if you love Jesus and you belong to him, that hardship that's continuing, it will just be another brick in the wall of pain that he is allowing in your life and my life to bring us more and more to the destination of greater surrender, of greater dependence, of deeper humility, where he will meet you at that destination with surprising and renewing joy and greater strength in him that he longs to bring you. If he's tearing in that, if he's making you wait longer than that, it's because he needs to, not because he wants to. He's not willing to shortchange for temporary relief the long-range work he's doing to change you from being a citizen of hell into the perfect image of your son. Do you ever think about that? That what we all are is recovering from being citizens worthy of hell? 
And we're being changed, transformed progressively into the image of Jesus Christ perfectly. That's a big project, isn't it? That can take some time. That cannot always feel good. But God is committed to do it. So whatever he's doing, and he's doing many things right now in our lives in this very moment. He is sovereign over it. He is in control all over it. And he is conducting the symphony of the present to complete this beautiful song of your life. To make it a good song. To make it a good, a blessed song. To make it a true song and a sweet song. That when you look back at its completion, you will say, oh Lord, you are so good. And you are so wise. You are so kind. You are so beautiful. And you have made my life beautiful and good. He will do it. Oh Lord, I just want to stop and pray. Give us grace to believe this. That the present belongs to us. That with all of its difficulties, it belongs to us. It is being forced by your power to bend its knee for our good. And now Paul says the future belongs to us. The future. As if he's anticipating our temptation to say, okay, maybe now is good, but what about tomorrow? To lift our eyes from the present and look down at the long corridor of all our tomorrows. A corridor that we so easily fill with our grand plans or our unbelieving anxieties. We fill that corridor up and Paul says, no, no, no. Don't bother filling it up with either of those things. Just know that it belongs to you. God is going to make it bend its knee for your good as well. It's one thing to know at this moment God's at work in us, in the present. But, but how comforting it is to know that God is not going to leave the workbench today. And tomorrow we'll find it empty of his presence. It's not what he does. He stays on the job till the job is finished. And Paul said at the very beginning of this long and difficult letter. That God, who has given the future to you, will, he says... Sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Or as he says in another place. He who began a good work in you. He will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh Lord help me. Help us to believe this Lord. It is the fuel our souls must run on. Please. The future belongs to you. It has been secured for your good. Just as it was when Peter, in the present, heard Jesus tell him that Satan wanted Peter's future. That Satan wanted Peter's future to steal it from God, to damn Peter because of Peter's sin. And Jesus, in the present, knowing Peter in the future would fail and flee and turn his back on his friend, he said, Peter... In the future, you will deny me. But Peter, I'm making the future your slave. It's going to have to bend its knee for your good. And I have already prayed for you so that in the future still coming, you will repent. And your faith will not fail. You will come back to me, Peter. The future belongs to you, brother. Do you ever wonder what God would do if he was to allow terrible persecution? I mean, just... ISIS type persecution into your life. I wonder about it. I wonder what I would do. I wonder what he would allow happen to me. 
what God would allow happen to my children? God doesn't wonder. He is there already and he's waiting for grace for you to endure. He's waiting with the power you don't have today to stand. And if you falter, he's waiting with forgiveness to restore you, just like he did for Peter. Brothers and sisters, the future belongs to you. God has made it your servant for his good purposes in your life. And now Paul switches from what belongs to you to who you belong to. And he says, and you are Christ's. Symbols are crashing. The sunset is getting more glorious. The sky is aflame. It's so beautiful. He says, you're Christ's. It's the best thing he said in this whole letter. (laughs) He's getting to the foundation of it all. Jesus Christ. Why are all things? Why are all things? Why are Peter and Paul and Apollos and Andrew and Fred and any leader, any spouse, any husband? Why does it all belong to you? Because we belong to Jesus. See, without the blood of Christ, without Jesus, none of these things would belong to you. They would not be your servants. Paul, Cephas, and Apollo, and every other leader in the church would not be your servant. They would be men that you would think gentle fools or glorious gods. You would at best worship them in idolatry or quietly hate and despise them. The world would not serve you. The world would entrap you and imprison you. Life would not be your servant. It would be a gift that you'd use and abuse for your selfish ends. And it would disappoint you and embitter you. Death would not be your servant. It would be your final executioner to usher you into outer darkness. Where the worm is not satisfied and the fire is not quenched. The present would not be your servant. Every circumstance would drive you at varying rates of speed, farther from God and deeper into unbelief and reliance on anything and everything but him. And the future would not be your servant either. It would just be an impossible puzzle to waste the present either worrying over or imagining how you are conquered in your self-confidence. So what happened? How did all these things come to belong to you Because Paul says, because you came to belong to Christ. That's what happened. The gospel happened. Calvary happened. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ purchased you to become his bride. And as dowry, he paid for your life with blood spilt all over a wooden cross. On that day, he bought you. And he bought all things for you to be your servant, to do you good. He paid for you in full when he took the punishment for all of your sins, all of your past sins, all of your present sins, all of your future sins. He left nothing uncovered. He left nothing unpaid for. In love, he purchased you who could never earn his love so that you would never have to worry about earning his love. He covered you in a robe of righteousness that is not your own, but is given to you as a gift. He made you his bride. 
and you belong to him. And because you're his bride, everything he owns belongs to you. Because like a good husband, because like the best husband there could possibly be, he lays down everything for you. Everything for you. And he gives it all to you. Paul, Cephas, Apollo, the world, life, death, the present, the future, all of it. He owns it and all of it he gives to you. He is your husband redeemer. All he has is yours. Everything he made in his infinite power, everything he upholds right now by his almighty energy, he takes it now and he subdues it under your feet. Whether you see it or not, that is what he is doing to make it serve you. Because you live in him, because he is your life, because he loves you with an everlasting love that will not let you go. And now nothing, not this world, not life, not death, not the present, nor things to come can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Finally, Paul seals it with the greatest of bindings, with a double lock, an ultra-reinforced love. He says, Christ is God's. Just in case it wasn't enough that you belong to Christ, do you know who Christ belongs to? Yahweh, the great I am. You're not going to get away. Doesn't this remind you of the double-locked, ultra-reinforced love of John 10, 28? I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So just a few application points to close. If you can struggle like me to have this kind of hope and feel this sense of blood what privilege. Maybe start by asking yourself, are you looking at the glorious purchase price paid for you long and hard enough? Are you considering that God is a God who keeps his promises and the blood of his son is much greater than your fallibility, your imperfections, your weaknesses, your sins and temptations? That though those are awful and those may be great his blood his son's worth is much greater so are you wallowing in despair this morning without any signs of hope in him are you marked by self-confidence without any sense of needing his husbanding in your life either way despair or pride turn to jesus Recognize what he's done for you. See how serious it is a thing that he's had to pour out his blood, the blood of his son for you. Don't trifle with that. But don't doubt its sufficiency to give you all that you need. Maybe a few special applications for our season as a church. And these work equally whether... You're thinking about our church or you're just thinking about your own life. Just four big words. Hope. Hope. 
This passage should give us hope. The present is yours. The future is yours. Despite all the challenges in your life, despite all the challenges in our life as as, as a church, the future belongs to us. It has to bend the knee. However it looks like in our church, it's really not my primary point. But whatever we're going through, no one should be despairing. No one should be conquered by depression or alarm. Hope, the future belongs to you. The future belongs to me in God's providence. He is making it our servant. Secondly, pray. It's a second word, pray. Our Savior has purchased with his blood access to the one who makes all things surrender to our good. Our Savior has purchased with his blood our access at any time to the one who is able to make all things surrender to your good. But he does not do that independent of a relationship with you that's nourished by trust as you read his word and advanced by prayer as you go to his father and ask him for the things he wants to do for you. And bring this church to him. As well as your own needs. He wants to hear from us. I was so encouraged. A few weeks ago. When after one of our meetings. Holly just said. Fasting and prayer. Let's go it. Go to it. And it didn't come from. You know. It, it just came from Holly. It came from Dave. It didn't come from upper and high. And we, we. You know we. It's not that we don't want to lead that way. Or do that thing. We, we went into that season for six weeks earlier this year. We really need to be thinking about going into again, perhaps as a leadership team. But you don't need me to do that. You, the door is open to you right now. You can go. He's purchased that way for you today, tomorrow. Third word, love. Love. All things belong to us. Oh God, help. Help us, Lord. We can flee from strife. And demands as if for me getting what I want in this church season is the foundation of my hope. And you can too. We can talk and disagree knowing that all things belong to us. That our father is going to work all things for our good because he loves us. Therefore we can do all that we do together. Even in the murkiness of the questions that still go unresolved. In the far far greater light over that murkiness of his control over all things. And his good, sovereign love for us in regard to all things. And brothers and sisters, I need to hear these words. So I, 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 don't, I hope these don't come across as I'm up here correcting you. I'm ministering to my own soul. As I, as I went through this passage, it just buoyed my heart and lifted me up. And I, and I do want to share that with you as your pastor. And then the, the fourth word is, is work. Give yourselves to the good works that God prepared in advance. This life belongs to you for your good. He has created you new to walk in this new life in good works he's made in advance for you. If I might put it delicately, no interim senior pastor that you long to see or not see is going to keep you from walking in the good works that he has sovereignly ordained before one of your days came to be. There is no shortage of love that's needed in the souls around you in this room. There are plenty of weary saints who 
could use your encouragement at your care group men's meeting or at just a coffee or just in a moment after church. There are single moms in this church who need your encouragement right now or maybe could use a, a helping hand in one form or another materially or spiritually. There's no shortage of people to love and to give yourself to and just ask, how are you doing? How can I serve you in the way that makes sense to you? I'm not saying you have to use those words. There's no polity issue in our church more important and more urgent than the folks at your workplace and in your neighborhoods who are facing the prospect of eternal condemnation are in desperate need of the gospel that you and I know. Brothers and sisters, today God has reminded us that we can walk confidently into a world, into a life, into a present, into a future that belongs to us. That he's forcing all things to be for our good because we belong to Christ. And because his father is now our father. And he's going to make all things work for our good. And he has made that very promise and signed it with the very blood of his firstborn child. Let me say that again. All things are yours to be worked for your good. And he has made that promise and signed it with the very blood of his firstborn son. Oh, how I need to believe that. Oh, God, make me a man who believes that every moment. Make you, my brothers and sisters, men and women who believe that every moment. That every moment belongs to you for your good. That that's a promise that you have from God. That he has signed it with the blood of his only child. So let's trust him in this difficult life, this uncertain future. Let's trust him. Let's walk into this day confident that we truly will lack nothing he will not provide because we are surrounded by a love that will not let us go. Amen. So grateful to be able to talk to you this morning and May the Lord bless his word to your souls and your hearts.